Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. My name is Ben Laboot, and today we are deepening our investigation into the man, the myth, the legend, who is Melchizedek. We began our discussion of this Rakondite character in the previous episode, however, this is not a part two, necessarily. Today's episode is its own, as was the previous. If you'd like to visit that content first, you certainly can, but you will not be lost if you don't. Part 1. Certitude Bereshit, also called Genesis, is a book replete with interesting characters about whom very little is known. Take Enoch, for example, the great-grandfather of Noah, about whom it is written, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This odd verse is generally understood that Enoch never died, that without death God took him. Accordingly, he is believed to be one of only two biblical figures who never experienced death. The other is the prophet Elijah. Farther into Genesis, Terah is another arcane figure who nevertheless catches the eye. He was the father of Abraham, and the Bible says that Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, and Sarai, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Could this verse indicate that before God called Abram to the promised land, God first called Terah? But Terah stopped halfway and died there. Is it only then that God turned the challenge to Abram, saying, Get going out of your land, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land that I will show you? If Terah had continued the appointed journey, would it have been him, not Abraham, who became the patriarch of God's people and father of Judaism? Was Terah God's first choice, as it were? We can discuss the possibility, but quite simply, the content is too scarce to derive a certainty. We experience the same difficulty with Melchizedek. He has a few mentions throughout the Bible, but those handful of places are actually just extrapolations of the one very brief account of him from Genesis chapter 14. The pertinent verses read, Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God Most High, and gave Abram a blessing and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, founder of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your oppressors into your hand. Then he gave him a tenth of everything. This encounter happened early enough in Abram's life that he had not yet been renamed to Abraham. The setting of the blessing is this, that Abram had defeated a group of local kings who had plundered the city Sodom. The king of Sodom, therefore, approached Abram to mayhap strike a deal in which the king of Sodom could recover some of his lost possessions, now in the hands of Abram. So they met together in the valley of Shaveh, and they were joined by another king, Melchizedek king of a place called Shalem, who brought bread and wine to the gathering. Melchizedek blessed Abram, then blessed God, then there was a transfer of goods. And that's it. That's it for Melchizedek. Abram and the king of Sodom continued their negotiations, but Melchizedek was not mentioned again. Ever, actually. Before or after this event, not even a syllable is uttered about Melchizedek or the place Shalem, until about a thousand years later when the psalmist made a passing mention to him. 
Pausing here, what do we know about Melchizedek? Just the facts, mind you. Melchizedek joined Abram and the king of Sodom in a place called the Valley of Sheveh. He brought bread and wine. He was king of a place called Shalem. He was priest to God Most High, El Elyon in Hebrew. He blessed Abram. He called God Most High the creator of heaven and earth. He blessed God and attributed Abram's recent military success to that Most High God. The final bullet I'll add is that the name Melchizedek is a conflation of two Hebrew words, Melech, meaning king, and Tzedek, meaning righteousness. Therefore, the name Melchizedek literally translates to king of righteousness. Part 2. Extrapolation Now that the facts have been established, we can extrapolate and expand upon Melchizedek, or rather we can look to some of the ways in which this character has evolved and been traditionally understood. Genesis chapter 14, as a whole, is not the average Bible reader's favorite. Indeed, it begins with a sizable enumeration of kings and places. Eventually, though, the story accelerates. Important elements are introduced appropriately. The events are linear and logical. The plot, intriguing. About two-thirds through, we encounter the verse that begins, Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. At first, I pause and ask myself, did I miss something? I wonder how Melchizedek slipped past me into the narrative. Rereading and finding nothing, I question if perhaps he appeared in the list of kings that I skimmed over. But alas, he is nowhere to be found, as if out of thin air, he suddenly appears with bread and wine. But why no introduction? The author tries to convince me that he's an old friend of mine, and yet I've never met the man. I don't know who he is. You can tell me he hails from Shalem, but this place, too, I've never encountered. Melchizedek just arrives, and he arrives to orchestrate the powerful scene of invoking God Most High to bless Abram. Then, as suddenly as he had appeared, he disappeared, vanished without a trace. Like medieval nobility, many important characters in the book of Genesis are accompanied by lengthy pedigrees, some tracing back to Adam and Eve themselves. Melchizedek, in contrast, has no such provenance. Where is his genealogy? What was his ancestry? We don't know, it isn't mentioned. The only hint of his lineage is the fact that he is king of a place called Shalem. Not much use, though, for we know less about the place than the man who ruled it. But more on that later. Thus, the mysterious Melchizedek, whose origins are unknown, whose death is unrecorded, passes in and out of the Bible as a character without boundaries. That is, no beginning and no end. As you can imagine, This curiosity has gripped many throughout the millennia, with many even positing the fantastic claim that the man himself was truly timeless. Not that what is written about him carries no birth nor death nor ancestry, but that he himself, as a living, breathing person, was verily timeless, parentless, and even deathless. Like God Most High whom he served, perchance Melchizedek was, is, 
also without beginning, without end, an immortal and eternal figure. Setting aside that conjecture, we know with certainty that Melchizedek was priest to the Most High God. Yet, what we don't know is what that role entailed. Eventually, in Israel's history, several centuries down the line from Abram's encounter with Melchizedek, a formal priesthood would be established through Aaron, and God would outline strict and specific procedures for that office. But of course, Melchizedek predates that era. He was not a member of the Levitical order, as Levi himself was the great-grandson of the presently childless Abram. Therefore, Melchizedek was altogether different from the future priests of Israel. He did not serve at the tabernacle, because the tabernacle did not yet exist. He did not wear the names of the twelve tribes, because the founders of those tribes had not yet been born. If we ask how Melchizedek became a priest for God, we find ourselves at a loss. And we wonder, did Melchizedek serve the Lord solo? Were there other priests? Did Shalem have offering sites or votive monuments? Was Melchizedek priest to an entire God-fearing community? And what exactly does it mean to even say that he was priest? To all these questions, we don't know. We can imagine whatever we'd like and make informed guesses even, but at the end of the day, there can be no certainty. And since all we can say on the matter was that he was priest to the Most High God, and because he obviously was not a member of the priestly order of Aaron and the Levites, we say that he was of his own priestly order, the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, it turns out, was a man of many hats, perhaps literally, but certainly metaphorically, because he was not only priest, but also king, king of Shalem. About Shalem, however, commonly anglicized to Salem, was it a city? A greater swath of land, perhaps a country? Or what about an Amphictyony, or the stirrings of a nation, or even an empire? As you know before I even say it, we don't know this place, Shalem, what it was like, or who its people were. It is a mystery, illuminated only by theories. Nevertheless, we can attempt to triangulate the place a little. Abram was meeting with the king of Sodom, a city that was near the Dead Sea. And with Abram's living in Canaan and the timing of the events leading up to the encounter, scholars feel confident placing their meeting site, the Valley of Shaveh, in that region. The Valley of Shaveh translates to the Valley of Kings, and though its exact location is anyone's guess, Josephus, the famous first-century Jewish historian, places the Valley of Shaveh at or near the Kidron Valley, which is next to Jerusalem. If we temper this assertion with the understanding that there was as much of a gap between Abram and Josephus as there is between Josephus and us, about 2,000 years in round numbers, and admit the possibility of substantial error on his part, notwithstanding, the Kidron Valley doesn't sound like too bad of a proposition. And if that's the case, then is there a possibility that Shalem is actually a place we know quite well? Could Shalem just, maybe, be Jerusalem? Melchizedek, its king. We have to fast forward about a thousand years before Jerusalem becomes a Jewish holding, thanks to King David, but could it have existed well before that time? 
Archaeologists assert that the city's inhabitants, immediately before David, had not been there long. But was their population even farther back in time? Could be. So could it be that Shalem is the Jerusalem of a bygone age? And if so, then how poetic that the king of Jerusalem blessed the man whose distant descendant became king of that city, and blessing in the name of God Most High, for whom Abram's family would one day build a great offering place on which that name could be written. Just think about it. What if Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem? Putting parts one and two together, priest to God Most High and king of Shalem, we can call Melchizedek priest-king. Now other than Melchizedek, take a moment and ask if you know the other famous priest-king of the Old Testament. It is not Hezekiah, nor Solomon, nor Uzziah, though he tried, nor Saul, nor David. This is almost a trick question because, for as frequently as the man is mentioned, it is never by name, but rather a title, Messiah. As far as Judaism was concerned, other than Melchizedek, there was only one other legitimate priest-king, the Messiah. In Psalm 110, David described the Messiah being coronated by God's own divine mandate, and then ordained as a holy priest, though, mind you, not just any priest, a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Friends, Psalm 110 is the second of the Bible's three mentions of Melchizedek. The psalmist said, God Most High says to my liege Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I will subdue your enemies before you. God extends your dominion from Jerusalem throughout the midst of your enemies, and your people will freely join themselves to you atop the holy mountain on the day that you go forth against your foes. Your people will rally to your side the way that dew clings to the morning. Resolutely, God has sworn to you that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The priestly order of Aaron was established in the Torah. But the order of Melchizedek, prevenient, perhaps timeless, transcends the Torah. Because we ask, who was Melchizedek, and how was it that he was a priest of God? We say that the order of Melchizedek is something higher than the priesthood of Aaron, something primeval, imminent, built into the fabric of the universe. The order of Melchizedek is something greater, more akin to a heavenly appointment, than an earthly calling. David believed that the Messiah would be a member of this transcendent priesthood. After all, the Messiah would be a prophet greater than Moses, a king greater than David, a priest greater than Aaron, greater than the expiratory priesthood of the Torah, rather a priest uniquely appointed by God from the beginning of creation, indeed, of the order of Melchizedek. So who was Melchizedek? He served the one true God as priest, he ruled as a king, and he blessed Abram. These in and of themselves are no small things, and yet some people reason further and posit that he was much more. Some believe that he was not an ordinary human, but a person that existed beyond the limits you and I know, that he passed in and out of the world as if from another dimension 
having no beginning or end, no birth or death. Some believe that he ruled Jerusalem a millennium before that city on a hill ever caught David's eye. Some believe that his priesthood was not an earthly position, but a heavenly vocation, handpicked by God to fulfill a fundamental, inherent role of this universe, God's creation. Whoever, whatever, the priest-king Melchizedek was or wasn't, he captivated the Jewish people and became a model for no less than their Messiah. Part 3. Tithe To divigate briefly, let's consider the tithe, T-I-T-H-E, which is traditionally described as the discipline of regularly giving one-tenth of one's income to God, usually through one's church. I discussed the idea of tithing, its misrepresentations, and its deeper meanings in First Fruits and Tithe Your Time, blogs from early 2022. I encourage you to check them out at storiesofsymmetry.com. But as it concerns our topics today, if you have ever heard it said that tithing predates the Law of Moses, that generally refers to our Melchizedek passage from Genesis 14. After Melchizedek blessed Abram, the next sentence says that Abram gave him a tenth of everything, everything referring to the recovered spoils. As Melchizedek was God's priest, there you have it, the tithe. Well, almost. Upon careful reading, that's not what the story actually says. In original versions of Genesis 14, whether Hebrew or Greek, there is a lexical ambiguity surrounding the tithe. Take a listen to how this passage is translated in the Schocken Bible, which is renowned for its adherence to the linguistics and philology of the primary source. Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God Most High, and gave him a blessing and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, founder of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your oppressors into your hand. He gave him a tenth of everything. That last sentence, he gave him a tenth of everything, is ambiguous. Did Abram give Melchizedek a tenth of everything, or did Melchizedek give Abram a tenth? Original sources, as well as most good English translations, retain this uncertainty. Notwithstanding, many people assume that it was Abram who gave to Melchizedek. After all, it was Abram, not Melchizedek, who had just recovered the wealth of Sodom. Thus, many assume that it was he who had something to give. On the other hand, Melchizedek came bearing gifts for Abram, namely bread, wine, and a blessing. Perhaps a tenth of the bread and wine went home with Abram. And let us not forget that the king of Sodom was present also, so he might be playing a role here too. Whether Abram to Melchizedek, Melchizedek to Abram, or some other arrangement, as you are used to hearing this episode, we don't know. We can make guesses, but certitude is beyond us. Part 4. Christophany Way back in the Stories of Symmetry series premiere, 
I said that, either superficially or deep down at its core, every story in the Bible points to Jesus. In that first episode, the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, we noted how those events foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But even beyond that story, from the Christian lens, just about everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Beginning with Adam and Eve, as the archetypical forerunners of humanity, who faced a choice to trust God's judgment or their own, and chose the latter. However, Jesus, when faced with the same choice, chose God. Abel was murdered because he gave his best to God, and his innocent blood cried out from the soil. Jesus, too, was murdered because he stood for God and godliness. Esther risked everything, even life itself, to boldly support an oppressed people, her people. Jesus followed her example and gave everything he had for even the least among us. I can continue ad infinitum. For obvious reasons, Melchizedek deserves special mention today. As priest king, he most definitely foreshadowed Jesus, the Messiah, who himself was also a priest king. The elements of bread and wine also, which were powerful symbols throughout the ministry of Jesus and his followers, even down to this very day. And there are other similarities, but for many, it doesn't stop there. A variety of theologians have posited that Melchizedek was actually a Christophany. Now that's a fancy seminary word, but all it means is an appearance or manifestation of Christ, in a very real and tangible way not as a phantasm or glowing spirit, but as true flesh and bone. Other possible Christophanies include Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jacob's encounter along the Jabbok River, which we talked more about in Season 2, Episode 2, What's in a Name, Part 1. As it pertains to Melchizedek, the belief of many is that he was none other than Jesus himself. Well, this might sound like a step too far, Consider what proponents of the theory are working with. The man's ancestry was not mentioned, as if the author was deliberately trying to remove him from the confines of this world and place him in the realm of eternity. The man was king of Shalem, a place which Psalm 76 equated to Jerusalem by saying, In Shalem also is God's tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. The man brought bread and wine, the items which will later become the Eucharist and represent the body and blood of Jesus at the Last Supper and all Christ-centered meals to follow. The man was priest to the Most High God during a time before priests for God ever existed. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the third and final biblical mention of Melchizedek, the author frequently describes Jesus as the High Priest of God, knowing no better way to describe the exact nature of the role other than to say that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. These facts and subtleties roll into a decently compelling case. Was Melchizedek an instance of Christophany? Perhaps a wacky notion on its face. Could it be strangely sensible? And this, I would say, is the end of the road. Melchizedek can rise to no higher esteem than this. What if he were none other than Christ Jesus?
Part 5. Takeaway. Melchizedek. The man, the myth, the legend, the king, the priest, the Christ, perhaps? And yet, what do we do with all this? There are the things we know with certainty, and there are the extrapolations. What is the appropriate level of depth? How far can we push the conjecture before we tread dangerously into the territory of writing our own fiction? With Melchizedek, as with any story in the Bible, both approaches have their place. Both can be helpful at times and harmful at others. It is important to be honest with ourselves about where the facts stop and where the expansions begin. It's not necessarily a bad thing to ask if the encounter with Melchizedek was a Christophany, but we need to be candid and recognize that such is not actually in the story. It is thought-provoking to suppose that Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything, and it is good to roll with such ideas and see where they take us, what enlightenments they contain. But we must always return to our starting point and recognize where the Bible's story stopped and our own began. Maybe Abram gave Melchizedek the first tithe, but we don't know for sure. It could have just as easily happened the other way around. We live in a day and age that strives for absolute certainty. But in the Bible, that can't always be found. We want to know who exactly was Melchizedek. But all we have there in Genesis 14 are three verses. Maybe his appearance in the tale is not about his identity. Or maybe the mysteries and uncertainties themselves are keys. We can put good thought into it and enjoy the places our imaginations and discussions take us. But in the end, it's best not to get too carried away trying to pin down who he was. Melchizedek was the king of Shalem and priest of God Most High. And maybe that's all we need to know. Those two facts alone, however, correspond to, and perhaps even initiate, an important standard for the Messiah, priest and king. The simultaneous and legitimate occupation of both offices, being both priest and king. If we add the third office of prophet, we have John Calvin's famous Munis Triplex, and I'll post a blog about that concept next week on storiesofsymmetry.com. But those and the order of Melchizedek are for the Messiah, who has a different standard than we do. The Messiah is supposed to be a priest king, but what about us? What are we supposed to do? What is the standard for us? This will be our topic for the next episode, so join again in two weeks to talk about the standard of stigmata. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. My name is Ben Laboot, and I hope that today's discussion helped you find beauty and purpose. If so, please share this podcast with the people in your life. Friends, family, classmates, co-workers, and anyone else who you think might benefit from it. Remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. Sharing our content will help us get discovered by people around the world. And don't forget to stop by storiesofsymmetry.com to check out next week's blog about Munis triplets and much more. Until we meet again in two weeks, go with God, go in peace.